Hi everybody and welcome to the latest instalment of Totem Talks, the podcast for L&D professionals, HR people and for anybody else who will listen. Uh, I am Mark Smith. I am Helen Fruin. And today's topic is going to be on emotional intelligence. Yes. Or rather confusingly, EQ, which makes no sense to me because you can't have an emotional quotient. Can you? <laughs> I guess it's just running off IQ. People are very familiar with IQ as a as mm. an acronym, so we'll have EQ as well. Either way, it doesn't work when you think about it and you look at the dictionary definition of quotient. That's fine. We can go with EI. It's fine. Thank you very much. So EI, what on earth is that? So emotional intelligence is uh, an umbrella term for a number of different skills that are fundamentally critical to most of the work that we do. Uh, In fact, there are various studies showing that they are twice as important as IQ, these skills. So if we talk about IQ, meaning our general problem solving ability, how smart we are in terms of, yeah, intelligence. It's, It's more the traditional way we think of intelligence. EQ, emotional intelligence, is twice as important for the success in most roles, particularly roles that are to do with people, management, leadership, sales, relationship building, account management, marketing. Think of most roles they're going to be to do with people. And emotional intelligence is much more important to success in those roles than just your problem solving ability. And that makes perfect sense to me because we're not computers, we're people. So a good chunk of what we do during the day is driven by our emotional state. So having an awareness of your own emotions and the emotions of other people does make some sense in terms of its value during the day. If I'm asking you to do simple maths, then yes, IQ is going to play a more important role. But when I'm asking you to queue up next to somebody at Tesco's and they're in your personal space, it's at that point you need to apply some emotional intelligence to the situation and the inevitable argument you're going to have. (laughs) So in terms of business, though, where, where are the different areas that we can start to apply EQ or EI? Well, I think it's interesting when you say what areas of business can we apply it to, because I would argue almost every aspect of business. Hmm. And the the research is fascinating because it tends to focus on management and leadership. But I think when you can really tie that to profitability, that's where you get the good business case coming across, right? So there was a study of a global consulting firm. Now in consulting, of course, you are going out, making money and bringing in profit for the business. People who had higher emotional intelligence in these consulting roles brought in $1.2 million of extra profit, which was 139% higher than their peers who had lower scores on emotional intelligence testing. So when we talk about where does it apply, if you think about all the skills involved in consulting, relationship management, sales, delivery of a service, keeping your customers happy, you know, that's really fundamentally important. Uh, There was another study of restaurant managers, how many different businesses are struggling right now as restaurants or anything customer service. Restaurant managers with higher emotional intelligence made 34% higher sales than restaurant managers with lower emotional intelligence. Mm. So just a ton of research out there showing us that we need to be applying this in business across many different areas. Mm. I mean, anecdotally, um, I remember one particular client, we went to their, one of their better performing stores Mm -hmm. um it was a it was a bookies actually 
and people were questioning why why this store manager had such such much much better sales than the rest of the people in her area. When you walk in, she was the first person you saw. She bought you a cup of tea. She asked you how your day was. She pointed you in the right direction. She asked you if you'd been to a bookies before. So she really welcomed you in, and it was just really personable, uh, and it was a really just a fluid. It was a wonderful emotional experience walking in a bookies. Now it's not a place I would usually find myself, but going back to her bookies, I probably would because it, it was an emotional event as much as a, a transactional one. And right, you know her. Her store stood out on the on the little statistics and bar chart she had for that particular area. It was noticeable how much of a good job she was doing. And what's interesting when you describe that as an emotional experience is, of course, every experience is an emotional one. So if you look neuroscientifically in terms of what's happening in our brains as we form emotions, there's a number of processes that we're going through. So we're analysing a situation for threat. Is this a threat to my safety? which can then also produce an emotional reaction. We're analysing the situation according to what is familiar or what is unfamiliar, which again, things that are unfamiliar tend to create a bit of a threat reaction in us. Mm. So as you say, a bookies is not somewhere you tend to spend time. You're likely to have had a bit of that threat reaction going on and somebody being really welcoming and offering you a cup of tea challenges that threat reaction and tells you actually, no, this is a safe place to be. Mm then you've got your reactions to what's going on. So even if you are cognitively rather than emotionally responding, so what I mean by that is you've walked into a situation or you're having a conversation with someone and instead of getting an immediate feeling of that, you are more rationally or cognitively processing, oh, well, this person said this and I'm not sure if I agree with that and I want to now think that through. As you're thinking things through, you're then having a different emotional reaction to what you're now thinking about. So we're always processing emotions, always working through different emotions. And what you're describing in walking into a bookies is perhaps the difference between the fear reaction that you could have had and how she challenged that and actually made you feel safe. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating at the moment with response to COVID-19, response to anti-racism, is a bigger call than ever before for managers and leaders to create psychological safety and to demonstrate compassion. Those have always been noises in the management and leadership space, but they're now much, much bigger noises. And those are absolutely emotional intelligence skills. And so what is a psychologically safe space? I I, I imagine not many people have it in any context in their lives. I mean, you know, I can point a few married couples out where there is no psychological safety mm-hmm. in their relationship. So how on earth are we supposed to generate that space in a work environment, particularly when it's online now as well? Absolutely. And that's a really difficult thing to do because to create psychological safety, first, let's talk about what psychological safety is. It's the sense that this is a safe space, that I can talk about what's going on for me. I can talk about how I'm feeling. I can talk about things I'm finding difficult. And perhaps most importantly, I can disagree with you. And for me to feel that this is a safe space for that is quite difficult to achieve because it's about building trust and having a successful track record of knowing that I disagreed with you before and that was okay, Mm. which is, of course, where the trust comes from. So as leaders, then, what we are 
pushing our leaders to do is show greater humility by instead of kind of this is what I've said this is my way of doing things and if you disagree with me you know you're going to get a certain face actually I want to encourage disagreement I want to say to people look this is my first idea I don't think this is necessarily going to be the best idea how could you make my idea better If I'm asking questions like that and showing people that I'm really interested in their views and then when they disagree with me, I'm really encouraging of that. And yeah, that's a really great point. I didn't think of that. Let's now make that better. I'm demonstrating more of that, that trust, demonstrating Mm -hmm. that psychological safety. So the greatest thing leaders can do is be the first one to say, I don't know if I'm right about this, to talk about the challenges we're facing. I'm really struggling with always meeting with people online, not building relationships face to face. I'm struggling with my family at home. If the leader is going first in talking about their challenges, that's what starts to create that psychological safety. Mm -hmm. I think another quick win for me, for managers in particular, is if you find yourself working on something and you could potentially give yourself two variations of it. So let's say I've come up with a slide deck for a client, for example. Create two versions of it, not massively different, just move a logo here or there, but ask for your team's input. Say, which one do you think is better? Okay. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day whether the logo is in the left or the right-hand side of the screen, but by giving your uh, your team the, op- the ability to just say, I think I think A or I think B. Perfect. Thank you very much. You're starting that little, it's a little baby step into the world of your team can actually influence you. They can influence your decision making. And it starts to give everybody permission to have a discussion about mm. different things. It's, 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 a, it's a very small, minor thing to do. And it doesn't take a great deal of time as a manager to offer that. Uh, so that would be my first tip. And you can grow from there, right? So if you've come in first with which of these two do you think is better? And then actually someone says, well, I think there's a third thing you could do that would make it even better. The the challenge to us is to be open to those ideas rather than say, I worked really hard on this. How dare you criticize my work? And that's where the humility for us as leaders becomes a real challenge. And again, you can see the research on increased engagement from employees where leaders show greater humility. Again, I always come back to Gallup on this. Up to 20% increased job performance when you see leaders demonstrating higher levels of humility. It makes a huge difference. And the idea of it having an impact on profit is obviously quite interesting to me as the finance guy. So, And I like my figures going up and up and up. <laughs> Uh, the question would then be, well, how do we actually develop right. this as a skill? What are the what are there like little stepping stones to success, mm. or is it like a you just go immerse yourself in it? What what do we do? So, I think there'll be a whole other podcast in getting into real detail of how to develop this. But we can start with exploring more about what emotional intelligence is. I mentioned before this is an umbrella term for different skills. What are those different skills? So, there's four things that emotional intelligence breaks down into. Self-awareness, how often have we talked about self-awareness being the utter key to all success in life and in business? So self-awareness is first, then self-management, or if you like, you could call that emotion regulation, how you manage your emotions. Then you could call it social awareness or recognizing others' emotions. And finally, social management or relationship management, 
Once you've recognized others' emotions, how do you help support people or even manage their emotions by choosing different behavior yourself? So know yourself, manage yourself, know others, manage others. Four skills of emotional intelligence. Now, I'd really like to deep dive into the self-awareness one because it's the one that most people think, oh, I'm fine in that area. I need to work on all these other things. Rubbish. The, the stats from Tasha Yurich. Tasha Yurich is a fantastic author and speaker on the subject of self-awareness. And she's found that around 90% of us think we're good in our self-awareness. The actual figure of people who are good at self-awareness is more like 10 or 15% which as she points out, that means that 85% of us are walking around lying to ourselves about the fact that we're lying to ourselves. Yeah, I mean, yes. Is that not very, is that similar to the driving stats though? Most of we us tend think to we're, think good, we're good at driving. Yeah, yes. that self-delusion piece. We are very good at self-delusion. We tend to think that we are, so if you are somebody on a scale of one to 10, how good are you at your job? How good are you at driving? Seven. Right, most people are going to go just above average. Most seven. British people, I think, will say seven. Most American listeners will probably say <laughs> an eight, I imagine. Maybe nine, maybe ten. I, I think Italian listeners will be in the nine to ten <laughs> category. But yeah, no, it's uh, that that lying to yourself about lying to yourself is it's quite insightful, actually. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it doesn't apply to me because. And there we go. Ha. We can talk about your delusion later. <laughs> so more, say more on. So what Tasha's looked at in her research is how to really understand more of what self-awareness is and why it is. Why, why do we think we're self-aware when we're not? A lot of people will say, well, I spend so long thinking over things and criticizing myself for what I did. Uh, the word ruminating, like thinking over what I've done over and over and over. Surely that means I'm self-aware. And the problem is that the way that we're doing self-reflection is not helpful. The biggest difference is in asking the question why versus the question what. So when we're ruminating, and I, and I love this word because it's based around the same root of the word uh, to uh, like a cow chewing the cud. So it's like you're literally chewing over something again and again and again. And when we're doing that, what we're often doing is asking why why did this conversation go so badly? Why is this happening to me? Why are you treating me this way? Why did I say that? Why did I send that email? Asking why forces us to look backwards and try and justify a situation. Mm -hmm. Now, looking backwards doesn't help us to really get to know ourselves, mainly because we're not very good at judging why we did something. Uh, one of the classic pieces of research about encouraging behavioural change comes from looking at sustainability and climate change activity. So a piece of research looking at how do we encourage people to put their litter in the bin? Or how do we encourage people to turn off light switches when they leave the room? Let's take the litter in the bin example. So we ask people, do you think you'd put the litter in the bin if we put an advert up saying, put the litter in the bin, it's really good for the environment? Or do you think it would work better if we say, put your litter in the bin, it's just what nice people do? Or if we put a picture of a celebrity and it shows a picture of them putting something in the bin. Most people will say, I would go for the logical, rational one. It's good for the environment. That's why I would do that. But all of the research shows that above 80% of us are actually driven more by the celebrity picture or by the other people have done this. Mm. And... As you will all know from what you've seen in hotels uh, and even little 
uh, stickers on light switches saying eight out of 10 other people turn off this light switch when they leave the room. Uh, 99% of people who've used this hotel room before reuse their towels. Please, can you reuse your towels? We are largely driven either by celebrity endorsement or by knowing that we've done things like other people. And it's an example of how when we ask the question why, we just don't understand why we do things. So if for your self-awareness you're reflecting on, why did I say that? Why did I buy that toothpaste? Why did I send that email? You're likely to think it was some logical reason when it probably wasn't. It will fit into the 95% of decisions you made using heuristics, quick rules of thumb that your brain just goes to automatically. So self-awareness does not grow by reflecting and saying, why did I do that? Self-awareness grows by thinking, what do I want here? What can I do here to make a better outcome? So I've sent an email, I'm upset about sending that email. Now let me explore what outcome would I like next? What I want to do is apologize for sending that email and I want to rebuild the relationship with that person. By focusing on what do I want? What could I do next? What would make the biggest difference? What that does is help me tap into my values, the things that are most important to me. And the more I tap into those values, the more I get to know those values, and the more I act in line with them, the more I am self-aware. You know, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. Well, then that's good. It's going to make an interesting podcast. It certainly is. Say more about what you disagree with. Um, I'm not entirely sure if tapping into your values makes you more Mm self-aware. What happens, for example, if your values... It sounds to me like I'm I'm talking to a Guardian reader here where we're we're all on the same page and it's some kind of utopia of people wanting to get on with each other. That's not true at all. What what happens if my values are actually um, quite right wing? um, They're nationalistic. I'm not interested in immigrants. I really want to shut down conversations with people quickly because either I'm uncomfortable with them or I see them as unnecessary. Mm -hmm. In my experience people of with those values tend to be less self-aware but they're tapping into them regularly so am i aware that those are my values so a lot of our our operating behavior the the stuff that we're doing day to day is driven by our values driven by our narrative the rules that we've developed through our lives through our upbringing through the newspapers we're reading and we may not recognize most of us don't recognize what those rules and values are ruling our lives so just because you're seeing action in line with the values doesn't mean that i'm self-aware of what i'm choosing to do And the more that I'm really reflecting on my actions and choosing actions in a more slow way. So Daniel Kahneman talks about thinking fast, thinking slow. Mm -hmm. Thinking fast is this 95% of our thinking is unconscious. We're just doing it automatically. If we slow things down by saying, well, what outcome do I actually want here? How do I think I need to go about this in the best way? What would work best next? I'm slowing things down. So instead of me just sending some rude email to someone, I'm stopping and thinking about my behavior, which might help me to recognize some of those rules and values I'm operating on. And of course, I'm not going to see that my rules and values are rude. I'm just going to see that I'm acting in line with my values, which comes to the other critical part of self-awareness. All I've talked about so far is internal self-awareness, what's going on in my mind. The other critical part is external self-awareness, as in knowing how I come across to other people. Mm. 
which then comes to your point of, am I being rude? Am I being dismissive? Am I being discriminatory against other groups of people? The only way we can really grow that is through feedback, which comes back to needing to have humility and an ability to create a safe space where you can ask people for feedback and be willing to hear it. Mm, Maybe I shouldn't have jumped the gun on disagreeing with you so quickly. You are are right. You You disagree and it highlights the point that internal self-awareness by itself is not enough. We need external self-awareness too. It's really not. I think it's the self, it's the external self-awareness that I think is, is, is a critical component in what's missing in a lot of the debate that's taking place across a number of different um, spheres of society today. Um, how, how I have an impact upon you. Mm-hmm. How much I value my impact above somebody else's. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd love to get into more detail about the other aspects of emotional intelligence and how we can work on them. And again, it's really interesting to see how the neuroscience is developing on this because we can now literally see through fMRI scanning when someone is controlling their emotions, what are they doing and what can we learn from that? So yeah, I'd like to get into more geeky detail on that at a later point. So let's wrap it up there. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. You can catch up with us on Twitter, Instagram, wherever. We are running some live events. Live events. Very exciting, actually. It's our, um, for many years, people have been asking, oh, you know, my company doesn't do that kind of development. Can I come to you personally? Or someone's been on a workshop and said, oh, my partner would really benefit from this, but their company doesn't invest in their development. So now we have open programs. We do. And they are cheap. And they are so cheap that I don't sleep properly at night at the moment. (laughs) What are we doing? We're giving them away. It's it's frankly outrageous. Um, Yeah. Go and jump on at Totem Consulting forward slash event, something like that. And we, we will be there. Um, but yeah, other than that, have a wonderful day, everybody. Take care. Thank you.